Yes, again, we're in Psalm 5, um, and that, again, is uh, page 529 in your pew Bible, if that's where you're looking. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you to wa- and watch, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. In their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, and you cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father God, we, we just thank you. We thank you that, that you are sovereign and you are in control of the entire universe. God, we, we thank you that, that even though um, that the world is chaotic and, and, and there are, there's wickedness all around, that we can uh, trust uh, in the hope that one day you will make it all right again, and that that you um, that you will reign forever and ever. God, just thank you for uh, drawing us to yourself. Thank you for your Son who died and made a way possible for us to have a relationship with you. Lord, just help us to uh, never take that for granted. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The book of Psalms, it's a, uh, it's a unique book. It's, in fact, it's a book unlike any other book in the Bible. Psalms is a book that is, uh, you can turn to in the midst of some of the most difficult and challenging times of your life. One reason why the Psalms are so helpful, I think, is because the Psalms are so honest. By that, I mean the Psalms have this uh, unique ability to kind of put to voice what we feel so deeply in our souls. And uh, as you read through the Psalms, perhaps you've done that before, maybe you haven't, but the Psalms address some of the most difficult and conflicting emotions that run through our hearts. The Psalms are, are not afraid of real issues. They're not afraid of raw emotions that we feel at times in life. They're not afraid of even dealing with some of the painful experiences that we have in our life. And for that reason, we can kind of describe the Psalms live where we live. And yet the Psalms don't leave us there. That's what I love about the Psalms. And while we, they meet us where we're at, they don't leave us there because they point us back to God. Uh, as the ultimate answer to our questions, as the ultimate source of our joy and even peace in life, as we saw last Sunday in Psalm chapter 4. 
Today, as we already said, we're looking here at Psalm chapter 5. And just like Psalm chapter 4, David, who is the author of both of these psalms, finds himself again in lousy circumstances. Have you found it? It doesn't take much to turn your circumstances sour. In fact, you may be running out of your office building to catch lunch with a friend, and just before you step into your vehicle, you realize you have stepped into a wad of bubble gum that some under-motivated person couldn't bring themselves to dispose of properly. And you're trying to pick it off the bottom of your shoe, and you're now irritated by those circumstances. The Psalms don't deal with such relative trivia such as that, Nevertheless, the sudden turnaround in circumstances is still the same. Just look at David. Here he is. He's anointed as the king over Israel, and yet he finds himself in lousy circumstances. In fact, we're going to see even in dangerous circumstances. And although we don't know the exact nature or the exact setting of his circumstances, we know that David was under fire. David's enemies are lying maliciously about him. They were deceitful. And let me tell you, they were intent on destroying him. In other words, David is under attack. And it's not just metaphorical, it's literal. He's under attack. So what did David do? Well, in a nutshell, David used these trials, these these lousy circumstances of his to draw near to his God. As Stephen Neal says, criticism is often the manure in which God's servants grow best. Psalm 5 is not a comprehensive answer to how we deal with lousy circumstances, but in fact, other scriptures show us that there is a proper time to confront your adversaries and There's even a proper time to confront your critics and even a time to defend yourself. But what David shows us here is rather unique. And it's something we can all identify with. David shows us here in Psalm chapter 5. In fact, I invite you to pull out that insert in your bulletin and follow along in your notes here. That when you're under attack, we should take refuge in the Lord as our righteous defender. When you're under attack... Take refuge in the Lord as your righteous defender. In this morning psalm of David, he begins at the very beginning of the psalm here by doing just that. By taking refuge in the Lord. But by the end of the psalm, what we find is he is now rejoicing in the Lord. David's circumstances may have been lousy and even dangerous, But he writes in verses 11 and 12. Look at it again. But let all who take refuge in you, Lord, rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now, this morning's psalm is broken into five sections or five stanzas, with each stanza or section kind of going back and forth between David and his enemies, or between the righteous and the unrighteous. And in three of these five sections or stanzas, it's as if David is standing face to face before God and only before God in his prayer, 
And then in the other two sections, as we kind of saw last Sunday, as if he turns sideways and he's now talking to his enemies. In all of this, David shows us how to respond when you're under attack. And so what I want us to do this morning is break down, unpack, if you will, what we find in these 12 verses of this psalm when you're under attack, because he gives us some guidelines in how to respond even for us here today. Number one, first of which, is to take refuge in the Lord and to do that through prayer. Now, let's be honest. The normal, natural response when you're under attack is to immediately fight back. As the person is accusing you, you're thinking of what you can say to get back at him or her. If that person insults you, you're thinking of a better insult to hurl back at him. In fact, you can hardly even let him stop to speak before you let it fly out of your own mouth. But what's interesting here is David didn't do any of that. Instead, he took his complaint. He took it to the Lord in prayer. We find this in the first three verses. Look at it again. Here David says, he's crying out to the Lord, and he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now what's interesting here again in these particular verses They don't say anything about David's actual prayer. They simply record how he prays to the Lord, which gives us some insight into how we might pray, especially when we're under attack. And so notice, first of all here, pray with spoken words and also broken words. We can pray with spoken words and broken words, knowing that God hears both. David's prayer is filled with passion here. He is speaking, he's groaning, he's crying, he is pleading with God that his prayer would be heard by God. This is the cry of a desperate man who is in lousy circumstances. In fact, David is in such distress that he says he is groaning. The idea there is that some of David's prayer was actually inaudible. That is, if you were beside David, as he groaned and prayed to the Lord, you would not be able to make out what he was saying. It was uh, groans and grunts. Now, most of the time, we pray with spoken words that can be heard and even understood. But sometimes we are in such distress, we cannot find words to adequately express our hearts to the Lord. And so what do we do? We may find ourselves praying with broken words that can barely be heard and barely be understood. But here is the encouraging thing. God hears both of those prayers. It's as if David knew what the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, when Paul says, The Spirit helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so when we are desperate, we may literally cry out to the Lord for help. And perhaps even with tears running down our face, we groan in our pain. 
And the Holy Spirit prays for us, and the Lord hears it all. And note that David does not pray to some distant stranger. This is not a God who he does not know. This is not a God who has abandoned him. No, he he is speaking to the Lord who David says is my king and my God. You see, David knows who sits on the throne of his life. He acknowledges God as my king. And even though David is what? He is the anointed king over Israel. David knows nonetheless that he served under a far greater king, and that is the Lord God. As one commentator put it, kings on their own thrones must be beggars at God's throne. David knew God personally. He knew him as my God. He knew him and surrendered to him as my king. He was not a stranger in God's presence. And so he comes to God with both spoken words and broken words, knowing that God hears it all. But he also prays with this great sense of urgency we find in our second point here, and even expectancy to the sovereign Lord. David asked God in verse 12, he says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. In all of these appeals are expressing the urgency of David's prayer, the urgency of the situation that he finds himself in. You see, David was not merely going through the motions of prayer. It's not like he was sitting at the dinner table and just praying. You know, we're kind of good, we know that. And it's easy, even in that prayer, to go through the motions of it. This is not David doing that. Listen, his prayer was not calm. There was nothing calm about his prayer. His prayer was not sedate. Listen, it is driven. He is driven by the urgency of his dangerous situation. So much so that David says twice here that he will pray when? In the morning. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, the idea here is that David's first thought upon waking up out of his sleep was about the threats of his enemies. Instead of dwelling on those threats, instead of fretting over them, worrying about them, and letting those threats paralyze him, he actually turns those threats into prayer. He directs them to his sovereign Lord, who was sovereign over even this. David also says in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. This was David's way of praying, not just with urgency, but now with expectancy. Like a, a watchman in the days of David, who, like a, a watchman who would be on a city wall watching for the attack of the enemy. That is where David is at in his heart in relation to God. David is keeping watch in prayer, and he is waiting for God to answer his prayer. He's waiting in expectancy. And it implies here that when we pray, listen, as God's children who come before Heavenly Father, we should be looking for an answer may not always be the answer we want, 
may not always come in the timing in which we want that answer. But as the sovereign Lord, listen, that's who we pray to. Therefore, we can expect to, for him to hear our voice and answer our prayers. We pray with spoken words, and even in times of our distress, we pray with broken words. And many times, those prayers are driven by a sense of urgency in the circumstances that we find ourselves. And as God's children, we should go before him with expectancy that he hears our prayers and will seek to answer them according to his will. So when you're under attack, listen, take refuge in the Lord. And the way in which we do that here that David shows us is through prayer. Number two, appeal to God as the righteous judge. The second section here, or stanza, is a reflection now on God's righteous response to the wicked, or to specifically David's enemies who are attacking him. Look what David writes in verses 4 through 6. David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now be sure to note the connection here in the very first part of verse 4 when David says, For you are not. That's, that's very emphatic in what David is saying here. The word for is important because what David is doing, he is now giving the reason for his expectancy that he just prayed in the first three verses. Why is David watching expectantly for God to answer his prayer? Because he knows something about his God. David knows what his God is like. He is a righteous judge. David's reasoning, therefore, is that since his enemies are so wicked, surely God that I am praying to, who is so righteous, will act on my behalf. In other words, think of it this way. Here is a righteous man praying to a righteous God for protection from the unrighteous based on God's righteous response to the wicked. If God indeed punishes evildoers, then he can pray confidently to God to do that now and to spare the righteous from their wickedness. Notice this. What is God's response to the wicked? We can sum up what David is saying in these three verses this way. Here's his response, and that is God despises the wicked. Who are the wicked? It's simply the unrepentant who continue in their sin. And God despises the evildoers, the wicked. In fact, so much so that David says that they shall not stand or dwell in God's presence. David declares that God is not a God who delights in wickedness, which means, if we can say it rather bluntly, God hates it. Evil is not welcome in God's house. David uses the term temple. 
is where the presence of God would dwell in the Old Testament. In fact, David says that the boastful or arrogant cannot even stand in God's presence. In other words, they were not allowed to enter the temple of God. Why? Because the boastful exalt themselves, listen to me, independently of God. In other words, they're boastful and they say, I don't need you, God. I can live life all apart from you on my own. And therefore, they are boastful over God. And God says they cannot dwell in his presence. The reason that the wicked cannot dwell in God's presence is because God simply hates all evil doers. That is people whose life is characterized by sin and evil. And if God, quote, hates such people, it means he despises and rejects them completely because they are incompatible with his holy and righteous nature. Now, what David prays here in verses 4 through 6, let's be honest, is pretty challenging, especially in the culture in which we live today. This is radical, and this is challenging. The words of David right here about God's response to the wicked. In fact, it's so challenging, so radical, it sort of blows up the myth about God hating sin, but loving the sinner. But according to David here, what does he say about our God? That God doesn't abhor or hate merely bloodthirsty deeds, but also bloodthirsty people. What a holy God we have. What a holy, righteous God we approach in prayer. And because David knows what God loves and what God hates, he has real hope that he will come to his rescue. He is approaching God based upon the very character of God. Does God love sinners? Absolutely. Absolutely God loves sinners. We know that. Jesus himself verified that when he tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so what? Love the world. That includes everyone. So much so that he gave his only begotten son. The reason that Jesus is even born, the reason Jesus came to earth is because he loved sinners like us here this morning. We know this even from what Paul tells us in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were what? Sinners. What did Christ do for us? Died for us. And so, yes, God, listen to me. God absolutely loves sinners like us. And God absolutely hates sin. Sin ruined creation. Sin ruins lives. Sin ruins marriages. Sin ruins families. Sin ruins society. Throughout the Bible, God is 
always, from Genesis to Revelation, is always calling people to turn from their sin and turn to a holy God. Why? Because he hates sin and has promised that he will punish sin. He will judge it. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus, in fact, bore God's wrath of sin upon himself. So, yes, 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 God loves sinners and God hates sin. There is truth to this, but it's not, listen to me, as simple as that because God's righteous response to sin and sinners cannot be reduced to one simple statement. Listen, sin and the sinner are not easily separated. And that's what we want to do. God says here that he hates both. And both, that is sin and the sinner, cannot stand or dwell in God's presence. That means that our only hope is Jesus Christ. That means our only hope is the righteousness that is provided to us through Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Listen, it's called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, and what do I get in response in my faith in Jesus? I get his righteousness, and it covers me. That is the beautiful part about this. Augustine put it this way, God loves us even when he hated us. He hated us for our sin and rebellion, but he loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so if the sinner, that's all of us here this morning, is repentant of their sin and has replaced their faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me, the Lord's blessing will be upon that person. But if the sinner is unrepentant and continues in their sin, the Lord's wrath will be upon that person. So what do we learn from David here? We learn that as you appeal to God as this righteous and holy judge, make sure that you are in Christ Jesus through faith. And that you are walking in obedience. Make sure that you are repentant of your sin. And that you are trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness. The third step we learn here is to draw near to God then through his steadfast love. You might want to even put three different words there. His steadfast mercy, his steadfast love, his steadfast grace. Because it all means the same thing. Look what David prays in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. And that phrase, their steadfast love, is translated in various ways of grace and mercy. In fact, many commentators believe that the, the, the New Testament way of translating that is grace. The Old Testament way is this abundant loving kindness of God, this loyal love, this steadfast mercy of God. And David says, I will enter your house based upon that. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. And when David says, but I here, listen, he is again emphatic about it. Now, so just 
think through his, his logic of what he's doing in this prayer. Because he has just testified that God hates evildoers. He's just testified in his prayer that God detests bloodthirsty and deceitful people. So now we might expect David to contrast his own superior resume in morality before the God. But David doesn't do any such thing. After all, as David looked in the mirror, he had to admit he was a blatant sinner as well. If you know the story of David, you know that he lied. He deceived. He committed adultery. He even went so far as committed murder. And yet David here emphatically is setting himself apart from the unrighteous, apart from these wicked, evil men who are attacking him. How does he do that? On what basis does he do that? Does he think he's superior to them? Well, that's what our culture would accuse us of doing in our mindset and our thinking. You think you're better. No, 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 no. We don't think we're better. We know we are sinners saved by grace. And it is upon that basis by which we now come to God and we set ourselves apart, not based on what we have done or even might do, but upon God himself and what he has done through us. This is what David is doing here. How is it that David entered God's presence in his holy temple? David realized that he could never approach God on the basis of his own righteousness. And so he acknowledges that the only way he could ever enter God's house is by God's steadfast love and mercy and grace. A love, by the way, that is open to anyone and everyone who is willing to repent of their sin and trust in him. One commentator writes it this way, and I love what he says here. He says, though evil persons are excluded from God's presence because of their sin, it does not follow that David is admitted by virtue of his own goodness. David's entrance into God's house would be based only upon the abundance of God's loving kindness. That is to say, it was only God's grace and covenant love toward his people which made entrance into his presence even possible. The point that David is making here is that as a true believer, listen, he is welcome into the house of the Lord to worship God, and in this case, specifically to pray to God. And he's only accepted because of God's steadfast love and mercy and grace in his life. Therefore, he will not enter God's house in arrogance. He will not enter boastfully like the wicked. Oh, no, he will enter with the fear of God. He will enter humbly and with humility, with reverence and fear. Remember, as believers in Jesus Christ, We all have access to the throne room of God. Romans 5 tells us all about that. But it's not based on our works. It's not based on our goodness. It is solely based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he provides us. Number four, when you draw near to God in prayer, here's what you ask him. Here is the specifics of our prayer request now. 
Notice it. Ask the Lord to keep you on the righteous path. You see, David is fully aware of the tendency that we all have when we are under attack. And that is to respond to our attackers in a sinful manner. When someone sins against you, it is very difficult to follow the command of 1 Peter 3, 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And so notice what David prays here in verse 8. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So we first saw how to pray. We pray with broken words, spoken words. We pray with urgency and expectancy. And now we come to the actual prayer request of David. And what we see here, we find perhaps what to pray when we're under attack. Notice it. We'll break it down into two, twofold. First of all, because the wicked are unfaithful in their speech, we pray for divine guidance. We pray for divine guidance. Don't miss what David is saying here. David is not just praying that God would protect him from the wicked. Oh, no, no, no. It's much more than that. David is actually praying that God would protect him from becoming like the wicked. And the reason David needs such divine guidance And protection is because of his enemies. They are real. He is dealing with deceivers. These people are set on his destruction. And they will use deceit, false lies, malicious lies to get it done. And so David even goes so far as to describe the evil of his enemies in verse 9. When he says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And so in essence, David is basically praying this way. Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Keep me on the righteous path. A path of integrity. A path of honesty and humility. Direct me away from the wickedness and evil. The pride and rebellion. The lies and deception of my enemies. Let not me become like them. Keep me on your righteous path. Now, there is a subtle implication in David's prayer here that we need to take note of. And that is this. As believers in Jesus Christ, walking in righteousness is even more critical than walking in safety. You see, when we're under attack, we're all consumed about our safety, our security. But David is more concerned about what? His righteousness and pleasing God with his life. In fact, we might even expand the application here to say when we're under attack from whether it's gossip and slander, maybe even physical harm, no matter what, We're not only concerned about our safety and security, we're even, we're we're concerned about our reputations, we're concerned about our rights. It's just people. You can't do that to me. And we want to defend ourselves, and we want to do whatever it takes. And yet, Dave, that's not his main concern here. 
His main concern is about walking in righteousness. Lord, keep me on a righteous path that pleases you more than his physical safety. Sometimes we may not be fully aware of all the details of what's going on. We may not even know all the dangers and various pitfalls of our circumstances, but we can always pray for God's guidance in that situation. Because the wicked are unfaithful in their speech, listen, we pray for his guidance. Number two, because the wicked, though, are uncontrollable in their sin, we pray for divine deliverance. And David prays this in verse 10 when he says to God, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. And I ask, would you pray this prayer? Does it make you uneasy to even pray like David prayed just here in verse 10? But sometimes your only choice is to pray, what David prayed. Listen, listen to me, the logic again here of David, the petition that he makes in verse 11 cannot be answered unless the petition here in verse 10 is answered. That is, God's people cannot enjoy security and safety unless at some point their enemies are removed. And similarly, You go to the New Testament, and when believers pray for deliverance from wicked attacks in the New Testament, it may be brought about by God's actual removal of them. So to David, here's his thinking when he comes before God. To him, the easiest way to deal with the danger of his enemies was for God to simply judge them. And make no mistake, they deserve judgment. Why? Because they had, as David said rebelled against who? Against God. And so, please understand, David's request here in verse 10, it may sound harsh to many people today, but this prayer is well within the will of God when it comes to dealing with evil. And David, also take note, is not asking God to do something that he was not going to do anyway eventually. David's prayer was that God's judgment planned for the wicked simply began sooner than later. And it's important to note that David's prayer is not seeking personal revenge against his enemies. That is not his heart's concern. He does not have a personal vendetta against his enemies and simply using prayer as the medium to fulfill it. That's not his heart here. Rather, his concern, his heart is that these people have, as he specifies, they have rebelled against whom? God. And his request now is simply that God would judge their sin. Why is the psalmist even later on so ecstatic over God's coming to judge the earth? Because it means that at that time, God will put all things right. And only when that happens can the cosmic party begin. Listen to what it says in Psalm 98, 7-8. It says, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. 
the New Testament carries the same testimony. You go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 there, and Paul is telling those suffering believers there in the Thessalonica church that they will receive rest when at Jesus' coming, his second coming, and God deals out affliction to those who are afflicting them. And so, yes, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, listen, as New Testament Christ followers today, we should always, always, always seek forgiveness and reconciliation first and foremost with our enemies. But when people continue to harm God's people, it is appropriate to pray for God's deliverance and then allow God to do that according to his will. One pastor adds this insight when he says, When evil people who are opposed to God attack me as God's representative, I ask God to be glorified either in saving them or by judging them. And since I do not know his sovereign purpose, I leave it up to him. He could save them as he saved the persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus, or he may send them to eternal damnation if they do not repent. The final response that David shows us here when you're under attack, number five, is to rejoice that the Lord is your righteous defender. At this point, David broadens the application from himself, and he now includes all of God's people who may be under attack. And David now prays in verse 11, Blood, all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Apparently, David's attackers were still prowling around like a pack of wolves trying to get him. But David has done what? Man, he's taken refuge in the Lord. And he is so overflowing with joy that he now burst out in singing. And then David concludes his prayer in verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now, don't think that this shield is some small-handed, handheld shield. Rather, it is a large shield that covers the whole body. And so the idea is that God's blessing or favor, it forms this protective shield around his people so that the malicious attacks of the wicked deceivers will not ruin the people of God. And according to Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, this protective blessing, this This body shield, if you will, lasts for a lifetime. Listen, David does not know when or how this will be done. But he knows who will see to it. God will. And again, the you here is emphatic. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him favor as a shield. Here's the point. The enemy cannot cover us with their malicious attacks when the Lord has already covered us with his favor. His grace, His blessing. So take refuge in the Lord when you are attacked. And rejoice that the Lord is your righteous defender. And in the meantime, keep praying what David prayed. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So far, we have looked at Psalm 4 and we've looked at Psalm 5. And both of these psalms have the same theme. 
in the same solution. David is facing some trouble in his life. And so what does he do? He turns to the Lord for help. And if there's one lesson that we should leave here with this morning, it is this. Notice it in your notes. Turn to the Lord in prayer and trust him to resolve the troubles of your life in his time and in his way. Now, before we close, let me make one other observation. It's interesting to note that in these two particular psalms, that is Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, do you realize there is no resolution of David's trouble? In other words, it's not like David seeks the Lord in prayer, and when he's done praying, magically, everything's better, all is gone of his troubles and problems. That all of a sudden, his circumstances that were lousy and dangerous are now hunky-dory and He's carefree. He is still in trouble. He is still in his lousy circumstances. He is still surrounded by his enemies at the end of each of these psalms. However, David does have confidence in the Lord. He turns to the Lord for help. And he takes refuge in the Lord as his righteous defender. And through it all, what does he do? He keeps trusting the Lord to resolve his troubles in God's time and in God's way. In other words, he doesn't manipulate the situation. He doesn't manipulate people. He doesn't manipulate his circumstances in order to have a more favorable life. He trusts God. And he keeps trusting for God to resolve his troubles in God's timing, in God's way. What a great lesson for us here this morning. Because let's admit it, me included, too often when the troubles of life come our way, what do we want? We want a solution to them. And we don't just want a solution, we want it now. We want things resolved. We want God to get us out of our lousy circumstances. We want God to deal with the people that are being irritants in our life. Or even harmful in our life. But it may just be that God's solution to our troubles is simply to trust the Lord. And to keep praying that he will keep you on the righteous path. For David, that is his first concern. It is his only request in this whole psalm. Lead me, O Lord. Lead me on the righteous path that you have laid out. Give me guidance to walk on that. Show me the way. And if it be your will to deliver me, however you see fit from this or that or whatever, I will accept that as well. In the meantime, I keep trusting you. And my goal is to honor you and walk in righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for the testimony of David here in this prayer of Psalm 5. Lord, I know there is many of us that can relate to this 
perhaps we're even living this out even now in our lives. And so give us the grace, help us to take hold of these truths here from David and to apply them in our own lives. Lord, help us to simply turn to you for help and to trust you to resolve the troubles of our life in your time and in your way. Lord, meet us where we are, but don't leave us there. David shows us, and he points us to you. So help us to look to you. Help us to run to the cross of Jesus Christ as our ultimate hope. We pray these things in your name. Amen.